The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Pray for me as I pray for you. Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity, God, to open up your word, to, uh, to get a, a clearer vision of who you are and what it means for us to follow you. And I pray for your people that are gathered here today, God. I thank you, um, Lord, that uh, they desire to be with you, Lord, uh, that as their, their lives are showing, Lord, that they want to hear from you, God, that they want to be near you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just, Lord, as you indwell your church, your people, God, that we just want to, we want to not quench you, we want to welcome you. We want to invite that you would be, uh, have your reign and your rule in this time and these moments in our lives, God, in this church. And so please, God, have your will. I pray that you would breathe, that we would, um, we would be consumed, God, that we would uh, love you uh, more than we have before, God, that you would burn up the, the, the impurities, God, the sin that lies in us, and that we would be set apart for you, God, for, with, with joyous passion. And so pray that you would illuminate your word, you would make it known to us now. That's in your name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. So I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, but it's kind of a weird thing. Whenever I, uh, I start to get sick, I almost get excited because I feel like the Lord is strong in our weakness. You know, so I'm like, all right, the weaker I get, the more the Lord's going to like, you know, going to show up. So, um, but we are... Uh, we're uh, still going through First John, and uh, just to review, uh, the book breaks into two kind of halves, you know, and both in verse 5, he starts saying, this is the message that we've given that God is light, and, and that starts in chapter 1, verses 5, all the way through chapter 3, verse, uh, uh, I think it's 10, uh, and then he picks up in uh, 3, uh, verse 11, all the way to 5, 12, and he talks about that God is love. God is light, and God is love, and all throughout, he's talking about the implications of what that means for us. Um, but specifically last week, we dug in and we talked about the miracle and the mystery that we would be called children of God. You know, he says, behold, from what world, from what place, what country comes this kind of love that we would be welcomed and be called children of God? And so what that means is, is it means that when you're asked, are you a Christian, there should be no of courseness. Of course I'm a Christian. Don't you see? There should be no of courseness about your Christianity. There should be simply an awe and a miracle that you would be called a child of God. And so if, if your Christianity has become an of courseness, of course I'm a Christian, uh, that, that, you know, it's obvious I'm a Christian, rather than that you're beholding in wonder the fact that God would save you, then you have forgotten what it means to be a child of God from what it is that he has saved and rescued you from. And so it is, it is a, a miracle and a mystery that we would be adopted into his family. Uh, and, and John's also asking this question last week. He asked, why is it that Jesus is going to come back? So he kind of started in reverse order. You know, last week he talked about Jesus' second coming, and this week he's going to talk about his first coming. Uh, and so he, he asked that question, why is it that Jesus is going to return? And part of it is he's going to purify his people, that when we see him, we're going to be like him. And so he's going to come back, and he's going to shed off any impurities that remain in his people, and he's going he's to set apart us for himself, and he's going to change this world. And today, the question that John is, is really kind of asking is, why is it that Jesus appeared? What is so necessary that it took God himself 
coming into human history. No, no other religious system, no other uh, philosophical thought believes in the incarnation. That, it, that there was something so serious that God himself couldn't just deal with it outside, but actually had to step within in time, within human history, and deal with it. And so what is so, so serious that God had to become a baby? I mean, having my child and looking at that, like, he's frail. You know, I mean, like, I mean, we got to watch him all the time, you know, afraid he's going to roll off the couch. I mean, you know, and, and the fact to think that omnipotence, all powerfulness would clothe itself in such frailty. That he would go through, you know, the kind of humility of like getting his teeth and like learning how to drink. I mean, like all the stages of humanity, that God would endure that kind of humility, that he would then be rejected by his own people. The people that said that they worshiped him and served him, that they would reject him, that he would suffer on a cross and die. What was so drastic that it required that kind of action from God himself? That he couldn't just send a messenger or send a prophet, that he himself said, I need to deal with this. This is what John is going to be answering as we dig in. Before we go, I want to, uh, into the passage, I want to talk about, though, there's, there's four different kind of audiences that John's talking to here in this letter. First, he's talking to fully assured Christians. These are people that they, they know that they are a follower of Christ, and they have good reason, right? They, they're, their assurance of salvation is strong. Um, God is bearing fruit in their life. The Spirit is evident, you know, and they know the Lord, and so he's talking to them. He's also talking to Christians that are struggling with their assurance, Maybe they're here, maybe they have a, uh, a sensitive conscience and everything is just really pricking them, but they're, they're not really sure if they're a Christian or not. But they, they are, in fact, Christians, but they just struggle with their assurance. The third group is talking to falsely assured non-Christians. Falsely assured non-Christians. And fourth, known non-Christians. People that know that they're not a Christian, right? Now this passage, while it speaks to all of us, John is specifically targeting people that are falsely assured and they're not Christians. They've grown up in the church, they know Christianity, they know religion, and they are self-assured that they're a Christian, but they're actually not. And so this is who John is targeting in this passage, is he's saying that there, there are people that are out there that would tell you that they're Christians, would be able to, to articulate all the right speech, but they are falsely assured. They are not genuine, they're not genuine Christians. And, and he's wanting to encourage those that are oversensitive Christians, right? That their conscience is oversensitive and they really are believers but aren't, aren't grounded in their assurance. And so with that in mind, uh, open up to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. We're going to read together. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice, his, who do, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. So the big idea that's going to guide us for our time is this, is that Jesus appeared to rescue us. 
Jesus appeared to rescue us and that our lives reveal our spiritual identity, our spiritual heritage from where we were born, where we come from. Now the passage breaks into uh, three points pretty easily. Uh, First is that Jesus appeared to take away sin in verses four through six. Second is that Jesus appeared to destroy the work of the devil in verses seven through eight. And then last is that Jesus appeared to set apart God's children. Jesus appeared to set apart God's children in verses nine through 10. So let's jump in. First, Jesus appeared to take away sin. The first thing that I think we should take is, look in verse four with me. He says, notice he says, everyone, right? He says everyone, and then a lot of, all over the passage, he talks about no one. You know, he uses this all-inclusive term to say that, listen, everyone is going through this reality. John is very black and white. He's not about the gray. And so he's talking about universal truths that he's focusing on the main things. And he's saying that this is true of everybody, right? Everyone, everyone who does this, you can't say, well, I'm exempt from it. And what does he say? He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So every person, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you need to, you have to answer this question. What is wrong with this world? What's wrong with the world? I mean, right, if you watch the news, if you, some of us, for that reason, don't watch the news, you know, but if you take a look at our culture all, it is very apparent that something is broken. It's very, very obvious that something has gone astray. Something is wrong and is corrupted. And so why? What is it? Is it just lack of education? We just need better education. Is it lack of finances? We just need people to have better finances. What is wrong with this world? Everyone has to give an answer. And we often say, you know, some of the studies, they, you know, they, uh, social scientists, they'll do these studies and they'll ask people, say, okay, so what's wrong with the world? Everybody says, well, people don't show enough love. And then they ask, well, do you show enough love? Of course, and 95% of the people say, yes, I show enough love. Right, the irony. <laughs> if even a minority of the people, the world wouldn't be the way it is. Everybody thinks that they're doing, of course, the right thing. And so the question, what is wrong with this world? I think that one of the things that we should take away from World War II is that education, finances, being cultured doesn't change the society from being evil. It doesn't change the condition. Germany was the pinnacle of education. You know, they were the pinnacle of, of intelligence. Yeah, they fell on difficult times, but at the same time, with all of that as backing, they still fell. And we can say, well, that, that was them, but there are people, everyday people, that got caught up in that. And so we have to ask, why, why, why is it the way that it is? Why is the world the way that it is? And let me ask maybe a more personal question. Why are you broken? Why are you broken? Do you see that? Or, or do you have enough introspection to see into your own life, your own heart, and see the brokenness that lies within you? To see that there are times where you know what is right, and yet you fail to do it? That you, that Paul says it this way, the, the, the good I want to do, I don't do. Now, what, is it just human nature? You're just like that? The Christian answer is that the reason that we are like this, the re- reason that we are broken, right? And, and if you're here and you're saying, well, listen, I, I do mostly good and I don't I really do wrong. You don't know yourself. You really don't know yourself. You don't know what it really means to be righteous. You've so lowered the bar about what you think righteousness is or what you think it means to be a good person that you've totally, you've totally misunderstand what it means to be good. You know, when you look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, after you read it, it leaves you in a crumpling heap, right? Because Jesus, on, in that sermon, he shows you what it really means to live a righteous life. He says, you, you want to you live righteously? Don't lust in your heart. So never, never look at a woman or a man with any kind of lustful intent. Never have anger. 
Be committed. Let your yes always be yes. You never make a false commitment. I mean, you, you finish reading the Sermon on Mount and you're like, who can do this? You know, it's not a matter of just keeping some laws. It's Jesus is talking about a righteousness that's far deeper, one that reaches into our heart, into our motives, that it changes us from the inside out. And so the Bible's answer is that what's wrong with us is, is sin. And here he talks about what the nature of sin is, is he says that sin is lawlessness. And what does that mean, lawlessness? What he's saying is at the base of it is that there is a, a, a treasonous heart in us. That we have a king that has given us laws, that has given us order. We all know, we all know that we ought to love people. We all know that we ought to be generous, that it's better. I mean, right, we teach our children this. It's good to not, to, to let other children play with your toys and not to steal them, you know? I mean, we all know these basic principles that God has ingrained in our conscience. He's put out, it's obvious, but yet we don't do them. We rebel against them all the time. Who are you to tell me what to do? I want to do this. And it, see, it's not just specific acts. It comes deeper. It comes from within our own nature. And this is what the Bible talks about, is this lawlessness, this treasonous heart that wants to usurp God. It says what Adam and Eve said, God, you don't know what's best for my life, I know better. And that's what every single, every single human, human's heart speaks and cries out, God, you don't know what's best for me. I know better. Therefore, I will do this with my life. I know that your word says this. I know that you love me and this is it, but I, I don't really believe, I want better, I know better, and so I'm gonna do this. And he says that it's lawlessness and that it's destructive. It destroys us. He goes on, though, to, to give us some hope, right? You know, in our brokenness. Because I don't know about you, if you've really experienced your own brokenness, sometimes it leaves you in despair, right? You kind of wonder, am I ever gonna be fixed of this? Are these ever gonna go away? And the Bible's answer is yes, it is. And the reason is because of the incarnation, All right? And so you see, it talks about that you know that he appeared, Jesus appeared. What it means is it means he stepped into human history. He came for this purpose, to take away sin. He clothed on humanity. And hear, hear this, the incarnation is both the most humbling truth that humanity can ever be told and also the most encouraging. Why? Because it's the most humbling truth because it says that you can't save yourself. You are so desperately broken and so wicked inside that it took nothing less than the Son of God coming down and dying on your behalf. That's humbling. It means that all of your attempts to rescue yourself, all of your attempts at, you know, strapping up your boots and saying, listen, let's go fix myself. I'm going to really be disciplined and try hard. Because sometimes we hear this. We hear these passages on holiness, on not sinning, and we go to that default. We say, well, I just need to try harder. I need to exert more effort. I need to do better. And you know what? I'm going to do, we make these lists. I'm going to make these, I'm going to do these 10 things afterwards and I'm, my life's going to be fixed. And, and he says that, no, you can never save yourself. You, you can never change your heart. And so what you desperately need is you desperately need a savior. And the incarnation is humbling because it says that you need it. And sometimes we, we haven't arrived to that point. We still worship our will. We still worship what we think falsely is able to rescue us. And sometimes God lets us fall that we might realize that we aren't able, that we can't save ourselves, we can't rescue ourselves, and it points us to him who can. And, and here's why it's also the most encouraging. It's the most encouraging because it said that he was willing to. It means that you can rest. 
sometimes when you, you've been struggling or when there's perpetual habit that's is just running rampant in your life, it just is exhausting. And what this does is it says, rest. God is going to work in you. He, he came because he loves you and his sacrifice on your behalf is enough. It is enough. It's satisfied. And that, my hope for you is that that breathes grace over your life. It breathes a breath of fresh air sometimes when we're in parched deserts in life. And it says that God has not left you or forsaken you. He is with you walking through the difficult times because he loves you. He cares for you. How did Jesus do this? He did this by taking sin upon himself. All right, it says that he appeared in order to take away sin. How is it that he takes away sin? In John one twenty nine, John the Baptist sees Jesus. And notice this is the same word that, he's, that John says here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has come to take away the sin of the world. To take away your sin, my sin. How? It's by swallowing sin up within himself. He takes our sin upon himself that we would be free from that burden that we would be free from that heavy yoke, that we would run with liberty and joy. The next thing is that he takes away our sin by giving us a new heart, right? Not only did Jesus deal with our sin on the cross, but then he wants to deal with our sin practically, right? There's a truth that when you trust Christ, you are what's called justified, made right with God, declared innocent, righteous, holy, but anybody still struggle with that? I mean, no, you know, I, I've been declared righteous, justified, but I still mess up all the time. I mean, just ask my wife. You know, I still sin. And so he's talking about that not only did God de- make a declaration about you, not only did God declare you righteous, but God is practically making that a reality in your life. How? Because he is giving you a new heart. He is sharing his nature with you. And this is what Ezekiel 36, 26 says. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And it, when he talks about taking away this heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh, it just, it makes me remember, there's a, anybody seen the movie John Q? You know, so it's this old, it's older, it's an older movie about uh, Denzel Washington and uh, he's got a son and son's out on the baseball field, and all of a sudden he just collapses, and they find out that his, his heart is, is too large, that it, he's going to die, and that he thought his insurance covered it, but it didn't, and so he is faced with this sobering reality that his son is, is going to die, and he is left with little recourse for it, and so he wrongly, but takes over a hospital, you know, takes over a hospital, but th- the point of it is that he goes to the extent to where there's not going to be a donor, and his son is about to die, and there's no other option. And he says, fine, take my heart, right? If, if I'm dead, he lives. And that's the heart of God in this, is that God loves us so much that he says, fine, take my heart. I will die. I will take, I will take their brokenness. I will take their death upon myself that they might live, that they might have a new heart that beats like mine. And Jesus, you see, Jesus is the only one qualified to do this for us. None of us can save ourselves. This is an outside job. Why? Because all of us are tainted with sin. All of us are dirty, and none of us can clean ourselves fully because all of our best efforts are still tainted with that same dirt we're trying to rid ourselves of. 
Or have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to clean something that's already dirty? You have a cloth and it's already dirty and you try to clean it and you're like, man, I just made a bigger mess. This is what trying to rescue ourselves is like, trying to save ourselves by our own effort, by our own ability is like, is that our best efforts are still laced with sin, laced with dirt. And this is why he comes and he says this. He says that he in whom there is no sin, in whom there is no sin, Christ alone stands worthy of being able to rescue us. He alone is pure. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this is how Jesus comes to take away sin is that he does this by taking it within himself. He in whom there is perfection became tainted and became laced with sin that you and I might be looked upon as he is, as holy and righteous. And so we see the first, that Jesus appeared to take away sin. The second thing that we see is Jesus appeared to destroy the work of the devil. We see this in, in verses seven through eight. The first thing that we see is, is we, we look at the origin of the devil. As he talks about the origin, he who is from the beginning and has been sinning from the beginning. And so we see Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, it t- talks about Satan. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O star, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you've been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so we see the origin of Satan. That at the beginning, that though he was a morning star, though he was beautiful and splendid, of all creation, he sought to ascend to the throne of the Most High. He sought to, to take God's throne. And it says that he has been sinning from the beginning, that he is the first one that has broken God's law and sought to replace it with his own. And that's the, that's, remember, that's the heart that has been transplanted into all of us that what Adam and Eve did and has been, has been spread forth to us is this heart to say, God, I know better than you. I know that you say this, but I'm the exception I, I, you don't really know my circumstances because I get a trump card. And it started, with, it started with Satan. The second thing we notice is that we see Satan's nature. Is that it talks about, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. And we see that the first thing that, that Satan is is that Satan is a deceiver, right? That he comes as an angel of light. He comes as a messenger of good news, but yet instead he brings destruction. He brings death. You guys ever had that where you put something in your mouth and it tastes really sweet and then all of a sudden it just gets bitter and just gets sour? And that's what Satan is like, is that he, he proposes sin. He, he does it slowly and surely. And once you come and you partake of it, you think it's sweet for a season, but it ends up rotting you from the inside out. He's a deceiver. My mind always thinks of the sirens of old, you know, the Greek legends, the sirens that they would stand and they would sing. And it was so beautiful. Everyone that heard them was compelled to come. And once they came, though, that they were devoured. They were destroyed. And this is what Satan is like, is that he makes promises. Why? Because it says that he's a liar from the beginning. And lying is, is part of his nature. He makes promises that he can never keep. He says that that one night, it's worth your marriage. He says that, that going after finances, that really it's just savings. It's not greed. He says that really, you deserve to be happy 
And God wants you to be happy. So he would never give you or call you to something that's difficult. He lures you in slowly and surely into a life of ease, a life of comfort, right for the slaughter. So the first thing we see is that he, he's a deceiver. The second thing is that he is the accuser. The Satan means accuser. And so he is the accuser of God's people. We see this in Job, that Satan is before God and he starts accusing Job. You know, he brings him up and, and he afflicts him. And so too, that's what one of his roles is in our life, is that God convicts us. God shows us the wrong and the evil that we're doing in our lives, but he always points us back to grace. He always points us back to being conformed to his image. God's work always brings us back to him, not pushes us away from him. The enemy, though, seeks to accuse us. He seeks to simply condemn us. And that brings no reformation in our life. It brings no repentance. It brings this world repentance where we might feel sorry, but there's no true change. And this is what he does, is that he, he accuses us over and over again that he might warp our identity. Have you ever had, I mean, when you hear a lie so frequently, it begins to take root in you. And you begin to think that you are that or you do that. And this is what the enemy wants to do is that he, and it, it happens in our self-talk, right? Is that he manipulates our sin, he manipulates the world. And so often you catch it and how is it that you speak to yourself when you fail? What happens when you sin? What happens when you, your brokenness shows itself? How do you speak to yourself? Because often the accuser is right there encouraging, whispering lies because he wants to change how you see yourself. He wants to change who you think you are because our doings proceeds from, our, from who we see ourselves as. And so he is, the, he is the accuser. Now the good news though, Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan. In Colossians 1, 13 through 14, and it says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it's such good news. I, every time I think about Jesus overthrowing Satan, because that's what he did on the cross, is that Jesus took what Satan thought was going to be his final victory actually turned out to be his greatest defeat. Is it, it makes me think of, he is our knight in shining, shining armor who comes to slay the dragon to rescue us. Is that he is not afraid and he will go to any length to save his people. And so he, he delivers us. It, it says that he delivers us from the domain of darkness, right? It's like he's gone on this rescue mission into hostile territory that he might get his bride. He might save the one he loves and he's willing to risk all of it that he might get her. And then he makes his escape back and he brings her back to his kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of deliverance, of hope, of love. In Hebrews 2.14 it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Have you guys read the Chronicles of Narnia? C.S. Lewis wrote it. It's a really good children's story, but you know, great for adults as well. I'm excited for when Theo's old enough to be able to understand it. Um, but in it, Aslan is the, the Christ figure. You know, the, the children have discovered this alternate world called Narnia, and there's a wicked white witch that's in it. And she rules over all, and it's always winter, but never Christmas. You know, such a sad reality for children. Uh, and Edmund is unfaithful to his, his family, and he betrays them. He forms an alliance with the white witch. 
And it's at the point where she calls, she calls his debt and she demands his life. And Aslan agrees to meet her in private. And he goes and he exchanges his life for his life for his life, for Edmund's life. And, and he goes and he, it's this humiliating scene where this powerful line that strikes the fear of every creature before him lets himself be demained, be stripped of all his, his pride, all of his strength. He allows himself to be stripped down to this table and bound and then he allows himself to, to die. And the, the white witch rejoices thinking that this is her victory, thinking that now all of Narnia is in her control, that she has finally vanquished her biggest foe. And the next day, you see the stone table broken and Aslan resurrected. And Edmund freed. Why? Because he paid the death that he deserved, but he conquered it. You see, and this is how Jesus has defeated Satan, is that he knew that, that sin requires a payment. It requires death, and he paid it to God. He paid that death that we deserve, but he beat it by resurrecting from the dead. And so Satan has no hold, has no power any longer over those that trust in Christ. The last thing we've seen that Jesus appeared, the reason Jesus came was to take away sin and to destroy the work of Satan. And the last point in verses 9 through 10 is that Jesus appeared to set apart God's children. Jesus appeared to set apart God's children. Now, if you read this passage through, it's pretty intimidating. I mean, let me just read verses 6 and 9 again just to hear it. It says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's God's seed abides in him and he cannot, cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, if you hear that, at least when I read that, that's intimidating. You know, I'm like, I, I, I love the Lord and I still am broken. I still sin, I still fall short. And so some people can read this and say, well, is this implying that Christians are perfect? Is this implying that Christians cannot sin because they're born of God? That since they have been born again, that there's no possibility of sin in their life? And there are some people that have read that passage that way, I think wrongly. But they, they will say that the Christian can reach a state of sinless perfection. And I would say that you, one, don't know yourself, and two, you haven't read the Bible. Because earlier, John talks about the reality of Christians sinning, right? In, in chapter 1, verses uh, 8 through 10, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So you're like, wait a second, John. Like, what, what, what is it? Like either are we not sinning or are we sinning? You know, and I think that what is so important to realize here is that he's talking about a continual habitual act of sin. It's not like Christians don't sin on occasion. I mean, because you look at people that, I mean, by any standard, are fairly holy, fairly set apart. I mean, you look at the, you know, I mean, look at David. He's called a man after God's own heart. And he murdered and had adultery. I mean, you look at, at Peter. Peter saw the resurrected Jesus, and Paul still has to rebuke him. I mean, Peter is in the middle of leading the church, and he kind of separates. He was hanging out with the Gentiles before, and, uh, and then the Jews come around, and he's like, I don't really, you know, it's not really, uh, 
uh, culturally right, you know, like in their eyes for me to hang out with this group of people. And so he totally abandons this other group that he was supposed to be mentoring and pouring into. He just leaves them high and dry and starts hanging out with the Jews. And Paul has to come along and rebuke him. It's sin. And so both of these people, I mean, they, they commit these acts of sin. So clearly it's, it's possible for those that love Jesus and are following him to sin. But he says what changes is that you're not able to perpetually go and live in the sin that you once used to. When I became a Christian, the sin that I used to have no problem became a problem. I started to become convicted. I started to struggle with it. I started to confess it and fight against it. And so this is what Paul talks about in Romans 7. He says in Romans 7, 21 through 23, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says that there's now a struggle within me that because the spirit of God has come and lives in me, I struggle, I hate the things that I used to do. I, I hate that lust, I hate that greed, I hate that anger, that impatience, I can't stand it. And so let me ask you this, when someone approaches you for your, in your sin, how do you respond to them? Do you, when someone comes in and they point out maybe your struggle with, anger, your struggle with selfishness, or your struggle with pride, how is it that you respond? Now, I'm not saying that in the moment all of us respond perfectly, but I'm saying in the general, over time, how do you respond? Do you, do you take sin side, or do you take Christ's side? Because for me, that's the heart of this issue that he's talking about. Is it a believer? A believer can no longer take sin side. They can no longer sit there and justify their sin and rationalize their sin. Instead, they acknowledge, yes, that is true and I am broken and I hate that. I hate that, but that is not who I am. That part, that habit, that sin, that is not the truest part of who I am. Instead, I am in Christ and he is renewing me and we turn and we repent and we fight. We fight how? Not through, not through just changing our behavior. Because, right, I mean, at least... When I hear this immediately, you know, I think of, all right, there's a lot of areas in my life that I need to clean up. There's a lot of areas in my life I need to do better. And this is not the gospel. Because that, we're, we're going back to you trying to save yourself. Why is it that you do what you do? It's because you believe something wrongly about who God is and about what really matters. And this is what he says, make every effort, right? We are to fight to believe the truth. That what really is satisfying is being with God, is obeying him, is submitting to him. That, that getting our own way, what we think, that it does not satisfy. Instead, it will disappoint us over and over again. And sometimes we don't believe it. Sometimes we, we think and we fall into that same habit. We haven't really been stripped of ourselves. We haven't really come to the end of ourselves. And God, luckily, is very patient because he lets us fail over and over and over again until we get to that point at which we realize, I am not the most trustworthy thing Instead, God is more trustworthy than I am. And so I should probably move my trust from myself to God and trust that by being with him, by relating to him, by abiding in him, he will change me. He will make me strong. He will bring discipline into my life. And this is what it means, the fruit of the spirit, right? It's as the spirit abides in us that he produces these things in us. And so he, he says that there's only two realities of your spiritual identity, of your spiritual heritage that you're either born of Satan or you're born of Jesus. And in essence, he's saying, who's your daddy? Right? He's asking that question, who's your daddy? You know, who are you born of? And there's a reality. He says, you can't proclaim, you can't proclaim to be born of God and not have a change in your life. 
This is, what the, this is what the false teachers did. Is they said, well, yeah, of course, I'm born of God. I, I know Jesus. I'm righteous, but yet their life produced no fruit. It showed no evidence of any kind of change whatsoever. And he says that that's not possible. And so let me ask, the things that you've struggled with, have you seen conviction? Have you seen the Lord working in them over your life? Doesn't mean that there are some things where we're going to struggle for a lot longer. But do you still feel the conviction of Christ? Do you still feel him working and changing and moving you towards holiness? Because he, he says this, he says that you've been born of God and therefore his seed remains in you. His seed is in you. Now, the amazing thing about a seed is that it's very small, right? It starts out sometimes almost unnoticeable. And so that, therefore, sometimes when, when someone becomes a Christian, it seems unnoticeable. It seems like what's going on, right? There are some people that they come to Christ and it's a very dramatic conversion. I mean, it's like they quit heroin, they got off, you know, they, they stopped murdering. I mean, like, they, there's just like, there's dramatic, there's dramatic conversions and praise God for them, you know, praise the Lord for that. That's, that is encouraging. That is amazing to see what God can do in an instant. But there's also testimonies where someone grew up in the faith, they grew up in the church and God, they don't know exactly when they trusted Christ, but they knew that they've trusted Christ and God put a seed in their life. And it has been growing slowly and surely. Now, the thing is about seed is it depends upon what kind of seed is it. Right? If you, if you put, you know, roses or flowers underneath the sidewalk, maybe it'll creep up through the crevices. Maybe it'll find a way to kind of get its, get its way up. But you put an oak seed underneath that sidewalk, and guess what? That sidewalk's going to start cracking in a little bit. Why? Because that's an oak tree, and it's got some, it's got some power underneath it. And so too, he says, you've got a God seed that he has deposited in you. And so what kind of power is that going to produce in your life as it grows? And so the question is, are we, are we letting it grow or are we quenching its growth? Because we can do that. We can quench its growth. We can refuse to water it. We can refuse to abide in the Lord. And this is the thing, it's, the growth is a miraculous thing. You know, Paul talks in, in one of his letters and he says that it's neither he who sows nor he who waters, but it's him who, it's God who provides the growth. And so it's this miraculous thing that God grows us up. He matures us. And that if we, if we practice righteousness, that's one evidence that we are from him, that we have been born from above, that his seed lives in us. And so as we close, I want to just give a couple application points. You see in, in verse 10, he says, by this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, John's really concerned that we do what is right, that we don't just profess things with our mouth while our lives speak a different story. And so he says, your walk should match your, your, your talk should match your walk. And so he, he's concerned that you do what is good, that you're holy, you're set apart. But it's not just this. It's not just truth that he's concerned with. It's also love. It's also grace. He says that you will love your brother. As I was studying for this passage, there was a, a commentator that was talking about uh, a child that his dad um, didn't really know his dad very well. All throughout his life, his dad was kind of, you know, a, a deadbeat. He was in and out of jail. He was drunk. He just was not trustworthy at all in his life. And just he, you know, he, he was never around. But yet his mom, who he stayed with, I mean, she was rigorous. I mean, she was disciplined. She was, you know, like, follow all the rules. I mean, she was on it, you know? But yet she was cold. 
She, was, she, she just had a coldness about her. Even though she was so disciplined, she was so like rigorous in all of the things and the rules that she kept. And he, he said, you know, even though my... Even though I, I can't stand my dad because he, you know, he can't be trusted. I can't rely on him at all. Yet, I don't want to be like my mom because of the coldness that's there. Because there's, there's, there's no ability to have compassion or to love or to understand that I'm in my brokenness. And so he said, even despite that, I'd still rather be with my dad because he at least shows this, like, compassion and ability to listen. Even though he just wants somebody to commiserate with. He doesn't really want to change his ways. He just wants somebody else to join him in his suffering. And so often, this is what the Bible talks about, these two different ways, religion and irreligion. The world, the world says, listen, who cares about truth really isn't that important. What really matters, the truth is, is up to you. It's for you to decide. It's personal, subjective. And so they reject holiness. They reject any kind of righteous living. And, and yet, oftentimes, the religious people that Jesus condemns are those that they are extremely disciplined. They're extremely righteous. They follow all the rules, but yet there's no compassion. There's no brokenness. There's no love for others. And do you see that the gospel, the gospel goes right in the middle. And it says that you are broken. You cannot save yourself. And therefore, that is a fresh reminder that you are never better than anyone else and that you can relate to others' brokenness. But it also compels you because you, you've been saved by him who loves you and you love him and it moves you and directs you towards holiness. It moves you out of apathy and indifference and it leads you to do what is right because you want to please him who has loved you. And so my challenge in to you is, is two things. I want to I challenge you and also encourage you. The first one is that I want to challenge you. Are there any long-standing areas of perpetual sin in your life? Areas where you would say, man, this is a habitual sin. I've been struggling with this for 10, 15, 20 years. Man, when I encourage you, don't give up hope. The, the heart that says, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I just am what I am. That's the heart that John is attacking. He's saying that we, as a Christian, we never have that heart. We never have that attitude. We instead say, God is able and I will continue to fight. I will continue to confess and to repent. I'll continue to trust the Lord. I'll continue to, to fight that sin. The other thing is, John's also saying, there are people that are genuinely deceived that, that think that they are Christians and are not. And so I would ask you, you know, examine your heart. If there's been, if you, when you profess you're a Christian, there's never been any true repentance. There's never been any real conviction in your heart, in your life. You've never seen a desire towards righteousness. Are you truly born again? Do you know the Lord? He wants you to know him. He wants you to trust him. And so you don't do this in isolation. Please, I know for me, the, the ways that the Lord has rescued me and continues to rescue me is through confession and repentance and community is that we do this together, is that we are a safe place. And I desire that you would have a safe place to, to be real about who you are and where you're at and what you're struggling with because that's the only way that we're healed. So I want to challenge you in that, not to give up and to continue to press forward, to continue to confess. Don't grow weary. The second one is I want to encourage you that if you are born above, God's seed is in you. God's seed is in you and he will do it. 
He will conquer and overcome what we can never do. And that is the good news, that even if at times in this life we were to struggle, his, his seed will take on its full fruition at some point, whether in this life or the next, and we will be free. And my hope is that that is good news, that is encouragement to you, that whatever you're struggling with, it is not forever. It is not permanent. That God is going to just scrape it off and rid it. And so with that, let us, let us pray and let us praise the Lord. Father, we thank you that you appeared to take away sin and destroy what Satan can do, Lord, that he no longer has power in our life, but instead we are set free towards you. And so I pray, Lord, uh, I know in my life there are areas of struggle, and so I just, and I know in our lives, God, there are areas of struggle. And so we come as a broken people, God, not, not prideful, not self-sufficient, but realizing that we bring nothing. We have nothing to offer except to give you ourselves. And to ask that you would change us, God, that you would continue to, if we haven't received your seed, your new nature in us, that we would trust you and be born again. And for those of us that have, that we would not grow weary, that your seed, that you would breathe fresh water and fresh soil, and that you would, you would nurture it and grow it, God, and that we would have freedom, that we would have joy and experience peace and love. And so thank you that you will do it, that you will, the work that you began, you will finish. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.